Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The book of Revelation, chapter 2, beginning of verse 12. John writes, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please pray with me, Father in heaven, we pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit, that we would receive your word, that we would know and live out of its story, that we would be shaped by it and ruled by it, and that this morning we would find salvation through it, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's often said that we live in an increasingly pluralistic culture. Now, what do people mean by that? Well, That is to say that we live in a culture that's made up of multiple backgrounds and religions and a plurality of ideologies that shape the way that we think about the world. And as Christians, if we're honest, we must admit that sometimes we struggle to know our place in our culture. But what I want you to see this morning is that we experience this pluralism not simply as competing worldviews, or competing philosophies, or even competing ethics. But I believe most fundamentally we experience this pluralism as competing stories. What do I mean by that? Well, for most people, I think our everyday lives are not really shaped by coherent philosophies. (laughs) We don't walk around thinking about all that we believe and think and try to make sure it all fits logically within a philosophical system. Most of us don't live according to a well-thought-through worldview, as much as we like to think that we do. No, I think that most people in our ordinary, everyday lives were actually shaped by stories, stories that we tell ourselves and stories that we are being told in the world around us, stories that come from the news and from our culture and from social media, stories about power and politics, stories about gender and sexuality, stories about human identity and ethics and morality and goodness and achievement and prosperity. The list could go on and on. Every day we are inundated with competing stories. And the problem with these stories is that they are also compelling. They call out to us. They they lure us. They promise false hope. 
and a source of misplaced identity. They offer explanations about life and who we are, how the world got here, and they are completely contrary to the one true story told by the word of God. And so this morning, this is the question that I believe we must ask ourselves. The question before us is this, and it's a question that was asked by a theologian named Robert Weber in the last book he wrote before he died. This is the question, I want you to hear it. Who gets to narrate the world? Who gets to narrate the world? That is, who gets to tell the story of everything? Who gets to tell the story of who we are and where we come from and how the world came to be? In the book of Revelation, Jesus appears to the apostle John, and in a vision, he asked him to write seven letters to seven churches. And this morning, as we look at the third letter to the church of Pergamum, what I want you to know is this, that the only true and better story is found in the word of God. So the first thing I want you to know is this, that the word of God is our authority. And I want you to look with me at Revelation 2, verse 12. Jesus tells John to write this to the church, of per, the church in Pergamum. He says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, Pergamum was a large city in modern-day Turkey. It wasn't that far from Ephesus. Like many of these cities, it was wealthy and powerful, and it was also considered a major center of pagan worship in that Roman Empire. Now, what set Pergamum apart is that they didn't just worship idols, as was the custom in many of these Roman cities, not just false Roman gods, but they actually worshipped the Roman emperor himself. Uh, The Roman emperor had a temple built high up on a hill, and there stood this temple that was dedicated not simply to the worship of false gods, but to the worship of the Roman emperor. And so this is why Jesus says this to the church in Pergamum, that I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Quite literally, Satan had taken the throne of Pergamum. Not just the heavenly throne, but the earthly throne, that these two two things had come together. And as they worshiped the Roman emperor, he came with great brutality, force, and authority. He demanded that he be worshiped. At the time when this was written, the emperor of the Roman Empire was Domitian, who insisted that he be called Dominus et Deus, which means Lord and God. The Roman emperor claimed to be God incarnate. It's not just blasphemous. It's satanic. This was the context in which the church of Pergamum found themselves. It was the place they'd been called to worship God alone, to hold to his word alone, to hold fast and be faithful to the truth. They faced immense persecution, not just persecution who, from those who believed differently than them, or from even the culture itself, but they faced direct persecution from the Roman Empire. 
And it was into this context that Jesus spoke these words of encouragement. Look with me again at verse 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, of all the different images given to us in Revelation 1, why did Jesus pick this one to give to the church in Pergamum? Well, in the Bible, the sword is a powerful image for the word of God. You can just listen to these. You don't have to turn there, but we see this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, where the apostle Paul calls us as the church to take up the sword of the spirit, which is, he says, the word of God. It is our weapon against rulers and authorities, against principalities over cosmic powers over this present darkness. We see the same idea in Hebrews 4, chapter 12, where the preacher says that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we saw earlier, right here in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1, verse 16, in John's glorious vision of Jesus, We're told that in Jesus's right hand, he's held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Did you hear it from his mouth? From out of the words he spoke came a sharp two-edged sword. Two-edged sword is the word of God. Why is it called a sword? Why is it a weapon? because it stands as our only authority. The church in Pergamum faced persecution under the sword of the Roman emperor. They heard a competing story every single day that he alone is the one to be worshiped, that he is the ultimate Lord over all things, and that if they didn't bow down to the Roman emperor and to his authority, they would face death. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus says, I'm going to show you a much sharper and much more powerful sword. The word of God alone is the authority over all things. Our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, puts it this way, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but holy upon God, listen to this, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it is the word of God. In other words, when we say that the word of God is our authority, we're not just simply saying that this is a rule book, that it's our authority because it has a bunch of rules and laws that we're supposed to obey. We're saying something much more sweeping and deeper than that. We're saying that this is the only true story that exists. It is the authority that explains everything. It is the truth. It is the only truth. And it is a truth that every other claim in this world must submit to. Why is this our authority? Because God, who is truth itself, is the author. You see, whoever we see as the author of things is the one we give authority to. Leslie Newbigin was a missiologist. He was a theologian, a missionary in the 20th century. 
I want you to listen to what he wrote back in 1989. He said, in our contemporary culture, two quite different stories are told. One is the story of evolution, of the development of species through the survival of the strong and the story of the rise of civilization, our type of civilization, and in giving humankind mastery of nature. The other story is the one embodied in the Bible, the story of creation and fall of God's election of a people to be the bearers of his purpose for humankind and of the coming of the one in whom the purpose is to be fulfilled. These are two different and incompatible stories. What was Newbigin saying? He's saying there's nothing more foundational to our understanding of truth and authority than the story of creation. Because who you believe is the author of everything is who you give authority to. And there has long been a story told, a rival story to the story of the Bible that says that everything around us got here by chance, happenstance. And that as that story begins to be told and you follow it to its logical conclusion, who does that make the author over everything? Us. When we remove God as the author of creation, we are making ourselves the author of truth. This is why the most moral atheist who lives is still committing the most grievous of sins, a denial of the one who created them. Fundamentally, we have a better story to tell. The story of a creator who made things with great intention and beauty and goodness that after he created each thing by the word of his power, he declared that it was good. Now, 30 years later, after Newbigin wrote these words, once you think of all of the competing stories that are being told to us, but who is the arbiter of truth, where we come from, and where we find our identity? The Bible, the Bible alone, the Word of God is our only authority. And this is why the church in Pergamum, Jesus said, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Why Satan? Because the very first question in the Bible was asked by Satan. Did God really say? From the very beginning, Satan's mission has been to question and undermine the authority of God's word. So the question for us is this, whose authority are you going to give over your life? What story are you going to believe? The story that comes from the world or the story that comes from Jesus, who is the word of God, who has a sharp two-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth. The second thing I want you to know is that the word of God is not only our authority, it's also our judgment. And though the church in Pergamum dwelled in uh, the midst of Satan's throne, under the threat of the Roman Empire, they were praised by Jesus. 
for their faithfulness to the way that they held fast to his name and to the truth of God's word, even to the point of death. Look with me, Revelation 2, verse 13. Jesus says, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. They were even martyred to hold fast and uphold the word of God. And yet, and yet, as strong as they were, as faithful as they were, they could not completely withstand all of the competing stories of the culture around them. They allowed rival stories to seep into the church. Look with me at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idol, and practice sexual immorality. The book of Numbers tells us that Balaam advised Balak, who was the king of Moab, to send Moabite women to the people of Israel. And what happened is that the men of Israel then committed adultery with the Moabite women, and then they engaged in pagan rituals of fertility and worshiped false gods. And ever since then, it became tradition that where there was the teaching of Balaam, there was adultery and idolatry. This is why throughout the Old Testament, when the prophets spoke of idolatry, they often described it as spiritual adultery. That when we worship things other than God, it is as if we are cheating on him. We are committing spiritual adultery. We are breaking our covenant with the one who's made a vow to us. We're told in Numbers 31, 16, that based on Balaam's advice, the people of Israel acted treacherously against the Lord. And so a plague came among the congregation of the Lord. God, when he saw the adultery of his people committing acts of sexual immorality, worshiping false gods, he brought judgment. And this is what we see, that not only is God's word our authority, it's also our judgment. That when we see that it is the sword of the spirit, we're saying that it is a weapon that comes from the mouth of the judge, Jesus Christ, to come and judge all things and make them right again. And here the church of Pergamum is, striving to hold fast to the word of truth, and yet they had allowed this false teaching, all these competing stories of their culture to seep in. And we could imagine many reasons why they allowed this to happen. Maybe it was fear, maybe it was lust, maybe it's they were forgetful, like we so often are, that God is the one who keeps his promises. But I want you to look with me at verse 15. Jesus doesn't end there. He also says that you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is the same group that we saw just a couple weeks ago in Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. A group of Christians who said that it was right and good to embrace the surrounding culture and its teachings. That in order to love them, they had to embrace them 
and even practice what they practice. So they actually taught that the idolatry and the sexual morality and the love of money and political power and cultural acceptance, that all of these things should come into the church. And though they claim to follow Jesus, they compromise with the idols of their culture. And what we see in the church of Ephesus is that they were commended for hating the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But here we see the exact opposite. The church of Pergamum, they've allowed its teaching to come into their midst. And so in many ways, what we're seeing here in Pergamum is the exact opposite problem in Ephesus. The problem in Ephesus is they stood for truth, but they had no love. The problem in Pergamum is they had love, but they didn't have truth. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, you cannot have one without the other. Truth without love is not truth, and love without truth is not love. These two things are not mutually exclusive. We are called to love the Lord and love our neighbor with the truth of the word of God. And so Jesus calls the church of Pergamum to repent. Look with me, verse 16. He says, therefore, repent. But I want you to hear what he says next. If you don't, I will come to you soon and war against them with what? The sword of my mouth. The very same word, the very word of God that is our authority also stands over us in judgment. It doesn't just declare the truth to us, but it holds us to the truth it proclaims. We see the same kind of thing in the book of Isaiah 11.4. Talking about the Messiah as he comes, we're told that the Messiah will come with righteousness and he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he will strike the earth with the word of his mouth. Not only is the word of God the authority over everything, but it's also our judgment. And you hear that and think, how is that good news? Well, I don't wanna hear a message that says the word of God is judgment. Why should we love it then? Because where there is judgment, there is the righting of wrongs. And there's the restoration of all things. It's the last thing I want you to see. Not only is the word of God our authority, not only is it our judgment, it's also our salvation. What I want you to see this morning is that there's always been competing stories in the midst of Christians as they thought to live in the culture around them. There have always been these rival things that sought to lure them away, to cause the church to commit spiritual adultery, to give in to these false stories that promise things they can't deliver. But it's in the midst of all of these competing stories that the church has a much better story to tell. It's the story of a bridegroom who came for a faithless and adulterous bride. It's the story of a God who loved his people so much that even when they were sinners, he sent his son to die for them. It's the story of a redeemer who laid down his life for his enemies. And so at the end of his letter, Jesus does what he does in every letter. 
that he wrote to the seven churches. After he commends them and rebukes them, he offers them a promise. And this is the promise. Look with me at verse 17. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus says, to the one who conquers, that is to to the one who holds fast to the word of God, to the one who faithfully holds the double-edged sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus, to the one who is faithful to the end, Jesus makes two promises. The first is this, Jesus promises hidden manna. In other words, he promises a new story, a second exodus. He promises redemption from the slavery of sin, that in Jesus we would be set free from our idols, that we would be able to hear his voice cry out so much more loudly than the other voices that constantly vie for our attention. A new and greater exodus, our salvation, and a new and greater promised land. But the second promise Jesus makes is a white stone, a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? What is this promise that belongs to all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and in his word alone? What is this white stone with a new name? Well, for centuries, theologians have tried to answer that question and offered all kinds of theories. Anything from a white diamond with the name of Jesus given to us who believe in him to a a white small stone with a new heavenly name given to us that is our ticket that gets us into the pearly gates. But I think this is a fulfillment of the promise given to us in Isaiah 62. We use this promise as a words of assurance this morning. You can turn there in your bulletin or you can just listen. I want you to hear this promise being spoken over you. For all those who are in Christ Jesus, this is now your story. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. From the same mouth that brings a double-edged sword of judgment now speaks a new name over you that makes you his joy and his crown. How can that be? See, because the truth is every single one of us is just like Pergamum. Every one of us has committed spiritual adultery. Every single day we give in to these false stories being told to us and we worship false idols. We turn our backs on God and we turn to our sin. Every one of us 
stands underneath the judgment of God's word. And so how could it be that we now have a new name spoken over us? Well, the only other place in the Bible where we see the phrase, a new name, which no one knows except himself, is later in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, 11. John writes, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And what I want you to hear this morning is a true and better story than any story you've ever heard. Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, who is faithful and true, the one who is the author and the judge over all things, turned the double-edged sword of judgment on himself so that he could speak over you a new name, a name that says you belong to me, a name that says, though you turned your back on me, and looked after all the names that this world has to give you, I'm giving you my name. And so, who gets to tell the story of the world? Who gets to tell the story of who we are and where we come from? Who gets to tell the story of everything? We do. We do. You see, to us, it has been entrusted, this story. To everyone who's been given a new name, this story is now your story. And in the midst of every competing story in our culture, he has called us to be his people, to be his church, and to proclaim this story to a world who desperately needs to hear it. May we know this story. May we live this story. May we tell it to our children and to our neighbors and to our friends. And may we proclaim this story to the ends of the earth until Jesus comes again. Let's pray, Father in heaven. Oh, Lord, we ask that first you would help us to hear this story once again. Help us to see that it's our story a story that you've written on our hearts and that you've written in a new name that you now speak over us. We pray that you would now help us to be your storytellers and the words that we speak and the way that we live. Help us push against the darkness of all the competing stories in our cultural moment and help us to claim and to proclaim the one and true story of you, Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. We ask this in your strong and majestic and holy name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.